Opinions expressed are those of the show hosts, not WSTU or Turcos Broadcasters. Any reproduction or reuse of this program without the written consent of WSTU is strictly prohibited. Welcome to Paradox. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 772-220-WSTU. And now your hosts for Paradox, Dr. Ira Perlstein and Dr. Leanne Talton. Warning, warning, Will Robinson, warning. Oh my gosh, Leanne, there are aliens in the OR. I'm a little too young for this joke, but I hear you. <laughs> well, that's because today we have a very special guest talking about advances in robotic surgery. I'm going to introduce Dr. Adam Curtin, renowned surgeon right here on the Treasure Coast. Welcome to the show. Wow. All right, good evening. <laughs> you, you weren't sure about that intro, renowned well, surgeon? Uh, which, which was the wow? I wasn't sure if I was supposed to say good morning or good evening. But Got it. Good <laughs> you know, what? what's interesting, and I told Dr. Curtin this before the show, and I hope, Leanne, that this isn't foretelling. <laughs> he, he's a very accomplished surgeon. We've got all the Halloween decorations here, and he's sitting in front of tombstones <laughs> overlooking a cemetery. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. I hope Ira. that's not your patient <laughs> visits for tomorrow. No, thank you. No, no. You're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're so welcome. Welcome to our show. Hey, thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation, and I'm happy to be here. We're going to have some fun. And I asked Dr. Curtin to be on this show because I went to one of his lectures. Oh, I guess it was about two weeks ago. He did a lecture on robotic surgery. I learned a lot. So I thought he could share that with our listening audience. So when you trained, you didn't go in on any robotic cases. Robotic cases. They just came out with CT scans. I, I trained right. recently enough to actually, I actually think I saw you in the OR. Yeah, but you didn't see any robotic cases. I think I did. Mm, yeah, Because those are notoriously some of the, the more boring ones to stand by because uh, everything is so perfectly uh, contained and safe. Everything's and, a matter of perspective when right? you're in the operating room. <laughs> when you're the one doing it, it may not seem so safe. Exactly. Well, safe, but it seems uh, much more exciting there when, we go. when you're doing the operation versus observing. Dr. Adam Curtin, what brought you to the Stewart Port St. Lucie area? Uh, well, that's a good question. I, I came back in 2000. Um, you know, I was born in Manhattan and grew up in New York, in Jersey and schooled in Jersey, trained in Jersey. And I, uh, I met my now wife, uh, Actually, she was my medical student when I was a resident. Um, she is a native Floridian. And she said to me, don't you want to live where people vacation? And I said, yeah, that makes sense. The ORs are all alike. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> right. I know. Maybe it's not for me. But... And you're one of the hardest workers I know. But I know Thanks. you have have a lot of hobbies. One of your hobbies is saltwater fishing. Right. And I know every free moment you have, you're out there fishing. Pretty much. I mean, that was the other way she got me here is, uh, actually I didn't saw water fish when I lived in Jersey. Um, she hooked me up with her brother who is a big game fisherman and goes to the Bahamas all the time. And I got my first taste of really real saltwater fishing and lobstering through him. And she did that to get me to come here. So now you're a Floridian and you're here to stay. Yeah. It's been 20 years. All right. It's 20 years is a long <laughs> well, time. That, that has gone fast. Yeah, hasn't it really has. It's really, uh, it's been a blink, a blink of an eye. Now you're part of a much larger group. Now you're with the HCA medical system up in Port St. Lucie. Tell us a little bit about your practice. Yeah, so uh, I have three partners. Uh, Dr. Loyola has been in town forever, and uh, I joined him. We were actually in private practice um, for about 10 years. 10 years uh, into it, we, we decided to join HCA, and we were hired by St. Lucie Medical Center. Uh, been there since, since I moved here, but uh, now we're, I suppose, part of the Heart Institute and uh, this wonderful, uh, large practice. <laughs> and your wife, who, where does she work and what does she do? So, so Jennifer is a family doc and she also is employed by HCA and she, her practice is on Jensen beach Boulevard. And, uh, she's with, um, 
She's with Dr. Tobin and uh, very busy, very busy. Now we ask all the married doctors who come on the show, and there, there seems to be a lot of married doctors that come on this show. I would say the overwhelming majority. What their dinner conversation is like? Is it all doctor talk or, or do you leave that at the office? Well, we, we try not to talk doctor talk at home, but, you know, it always devolves into something about, oh, I saw this patient today. I saw this, you know. You have mutual patients? Uh, we try not to. And uh, she doesn't refer me patients directly. Uh, I think it's a conflict of interest. So, um there are certain patients that are hers that go through other specialists, gastroenterologists, who will refer them to see me or endocrinologists. But unlike most surgeons, and this is why I refer Dr. Curtin a lot of cases, he has surgical hands and surgical skills, but he kind of has a, like us, a concierge doctor mentality. He spends time with his patients. His patients adore him. He explains things well. He's available. He's concerned. And his follow-up is spectacular. And I like that about him. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Sure. Thank you very much, Ira. I mean, you know, I think we're all a function of how we were trained. And I think that I was very blessed to be trained by the men who instilled those um, those ideas in me. So we talked about you and Jennifer and you're having dinner and, and I'm sure your kids roll their eyes. Oh my gosh, here they go again, talking more medicine. But you have three three kids? Four. Four. Yeah, four. Four. Yeah. When do you find time? How do you balance it all out? Well, you know, um, I used to take them all fishing with me and they were very interested for the first few years and then they get tired of getting yelled at on the boat and then they're done with that. So they're all burnt out on fishing. Um, three, three are out of the house now. We were left with one in high school and, uh, you know, it's great to see them spread their wings and, and fly. But And what are their aspirations? Is medicine in the picture? Interesting. Uh, one daughter is moved and she's working on a PhD in neuroscience in London. And my other son is now teaching in Costa Rica and my other daughter's up at FSU, and she wants to be a baker. <laughs> my littlest guy's here in Jensen Beach High School. Wow. That's, that's nice. Yeah, very nice. So, as a general surgeon, and if you've just joined us, we're talking to Adam Curtin, surgeon, HCA Medical Center. And in just a little bit, we're going to talk about the newer advances in robotic surgery. But overall, what types of surgery do you do as a general surgeon? Well, you know, Ira, the specialty of general surgery is quite broad, and it's the best thing about my job is that I get to do such a variety of, of procedures. You know, I, I deal with everything from the neck, thyroids and parathyroid disease, to dealing with breast cancer or even benign breast disease, a lot of biopsies, and uh, fortunately, a lot of uh, breast conservation therapy so that we are not performing as many mastectomies as were done in the past. We um, do everything in the abdomen, pretty much everything, abdominal surgery from gallbladders and hernias to stomach cancers, colon cancers, hernias, to soft tissue surgery. I mean, it's just every day. It's a, uh, you never know what you're going to get. And has that changed? I mean, ha has the, has, have the diagnoses changed? Ha are people getting the same types of surgery in the same amounts that they did when you were in training? You know, it's interesting that uh, a lot of the abdominal surgery we did open when I trained then evolved into laparoscopic surgery, you know, using a camera and skinny instruments through, quote, keyholes. Uh, now, over the past couple of years, we've taken it to the next level where we're doing robotic surgery. So robotic surgeries like laparoscopy in terms of minimal access, small incisions, but it's enhanced even further with these new, very dexterous techniques. Dr. Leanne, Dr. Curtin has operated on my family members. I love it when that happens. I love when it when you that can happens give, too. You can give a resounding. I, I can give You him, can say that you trust him with I your family. I trust him with my family's lives. My dad 
had elevated calcium for years and his doctors where he lived didn't figure it out. And Dr. Curtin said, you know, I think your dad probably has hyperparathyroidism. The parathyroid glands are small glands. Sometimes you have four of them. Sometimes you have six of them, but they're on either side of the thyroid gland. And they regulate. Which is in your neck. Which for is those in your of neck. That don't know. Those that don't know. And the parathyroid glands regulate calcium metabolism. And so if you have an overactive parathyroid gland, and they're very small and very hard to find, but this is kind of a what will happen is you, you'll develop osteoporosis and kidney stones. And my dad had both osteoporosis and kidney stones because his calcium was being leached out of the bone because of his overactive parathyroid glands. And Dr. Curtin, this is one of his little niches where uh, you can do anything as a general surgeon, pretty much. What prompted your interest in the parathyroid glands? Well, you know, when I trained up in New Jersey, I was fortunate to train under like 40 different surgeons. And one of those guys had a particular interest in thyroid and parathyroid surgery. And I just found those operations were kind of neat. And as I finished training, went into practice, I saw that there was a big need, especially when I moved down to, to Stewart, Port St. Lucie. I found there were a lot of patients with hyperparathyroidism that was not appropriately surgically treated. And these patients were being told that, you know, well, we don't do anything about this. So when I came to town and I found this, I started telling primary care doctors that, hey, I can fix this. And, uh, you know, it, it was a nice little niche I, I developed. And the best thing about parathyroid surgery is nowadays we get immediate feedback that the disease is cured. You know, the parathyroids make this hormone, parathyroid hormone, that you can measure in the bloodstream. And that hormone has an incredibly short half-life. In other words, after 10 minutes, it disappears. So if I can find a tumor of the parathyroid that's making too much hormone and a patient's blood levels are super high, as soon as I remove it, if I check their blood levels, their parathyroid hormone level is, boom, down to normal. And I get immediate feedback that that patient's cured. Now, I know you have a unique way of locating uh, the hot gland, so to speak, and a way to remove it without disfiguring the neck. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you go about doing that? Yeah, you know, um, there there's an approach uh, called minimally invasive radio-guided parathyroidectomy. And some of these parathyroid tumors have this strange affinity for radioactive label technetium. So if a patient is injected with a radioactive substance, some of these growths will suck up that radioactivity. And I can use a handheld Geiger counter to locate it in the neck. That way I can make a much smaller incision and guide my dissection to that area where the radioactivity is and find the offending gland or tumor. You know, a normal parathyroid is about the same shape and size as a lentil bean. You know, they're, they're tiny, they're 50 milligrams. And some of these parathyroid growths, even if they're, you know, overactive, they're only about the size of a raisin or if they get to be as big as cherries, but that's a big one. A cherry size adenoma is a big parathyroid growth. And the recovery time from a procedure like that is just a day or so, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, if we do a radio-guided procedure, check the levels in the OR and they fall precipitously, those patients go home the same day. But uh, if I explore the entire neck and I look on both sides, I'll keep a patient overnight just to watch them and then they can go home the next day. So for our listeners, can you describe, I mean, surgery 
one of the things that did not appeal to me to surgical specialties was the fact that it's difficult to plan your day, right? So, I mean, surgery can take, you you think it may take two hours and it ends up lasting four hours. So I imagine that- And the other thing is not planned. I mean, he has emergency cases coming totally. throughout the day as well. So I suppose you're really good at this at your stage of the game. So what does your day look like? I mean, what, what time do you get to work? What does what a typical day look like? That's a that's a funny question. And, you know, I'm not trying to talk people into going into this line because uh, <laughs> it, it's pretty hard. It's it does take a lot of uh, you, you, you better love it because you're going to spend a lot of time doing it. Uh, every day is different. You know, I'm in the office on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I'm sorry, Tuesdays and Fridays. And my full days in the OR are Wednesdays and Thursdays. I do outpatient surgeries on Mondays, but you know what I tell everybody? I tell I tell the students and interns that rotate with me, we operate every day. You know, so I have non-operative days. Today's a non-operative day. Uh, I did surgery this morning. You know, tomorrow I have a full day of office. I have surgery scheduled for lunch. <laughs> so you know, you just got to do the job when the job is there to be done. So with the extremely long hours, does that ever get to you? Uh, you know, I think, uh, the short answer is yes. You know, I was on call this weekend. I rounded Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'm working today and I'm just, uh, sometimes you get tired, but I, I do notice the older you get, the more tired you get. You know, <laughs> when I was in my thirties, uh, I could just operate day, night, day, night and it never bothered me. Now, now it takes a day to bounce back after operating all night. So, so on, Oh, on a busy day, like how many cases might you do in a, on an operating day? You know, on a on a big day, I could do six to eight cases. You know, eight cases is not unheard of. Uh, and, and again, I do such a spectrum, a variety that there are big cases and there are little cases. You know, some cases could take three to four hours. You know, I'm not the kind of guy who's going to let grass grow under my feet in the OR. I get in, I get the job done, and I get out. Some some things do take a long time though. And how many general surgeons work out of the hospital where you practice? So right now we have four and I think our hospital, you know, about 250 beds. I think four surgeons is a good number for to support the the needs there. But uh, you know, I've been there for again a lot of time and there've been years we've only had two or three. And we do what has to be done. So what you're saying uh, is that you have scheduled operating room cases mm -hmm. and then you have emergency cases. So mm -hmm. these are people that come through the emergency department and have some sort of malady that requires an operation. How, how many times might that happen to you when you're on call? I mean, how uh, many? I mean, I would say 60% of the time, you know, patients get bad gallbladders, appendicitis, diverticulitis, perforated ulcers, abscesses that need to be drained. Things happen and we're the, we're, we're the offensive linemen of the hospital. We're, we're there for, you know, we're the dirt lovers. <laughs> you know, we're, Adam Curtin, what's your favorite procedure? That's a great question. Right now, Ira, I, I could tell you the answer to that. It's a, uh, a robot-assisted right colectomy. I, I, I just like using the robot to do advanced abdominal surgery. Uh, I would love to say uh, robotic splenectomy. The problem with elective splenectomies is that they're few and far between. I don't, you know, in, in our setting, we don't get enough uh, referrals for to remove spleens with the robot. It's just not a common procedure. But for now, right colon resection, next left colon resection. So it's a flavor of the month. Well, it's you've the, had favorites. It's the you've of had the year. other favorites yeah. in the you past. Know, laparoscopic sigmoid colon resection was my favorite operation before the robot. You know, I really enjoyed doing laparoscopic uh, left colons. That was a lot of fun. We, you know, you you learn to perfect certain techniques even as you're you know, an experienced surgeon, you've been out for a while, things are changing. You know, I didn't train doing laparoscopic uh, colon work. And in practice, we we developed, we learned the operation and, and you perfect it over time, you know, and it's a team sport. It's not just me. It's, you know, it's my scrub techs. It's my 
my assistants and uh you know it's a well choreographed procedure dance and uh with everybody working together it can be a thing of beauty and you know we'll talk more about robotic surgery but i mean uh you know when i trained a uh, open right hemicolectomy patient was in the hospital for seven to nine days routinely and then we started doing them laparoscopically and we we thought we were really great that patients could go home after five days and last week i did a robotic right colectomy on thursday and he went home less than 48 hours later eating and moving his bowels and no pain and minimal narcotics minimal or no post-operative narcotics so it's been a huge advance and it really has me kind of jazzed and excited you know what our listeners don't know leanne is that the history of surgery parallels the history of war every major advance in surgery has come out of a war out of vietnam came the trauma surgeons out of the Civil War came anesthesia. And with each new technique, there's been a war. Hopefully, it won't always be that way, but have you realized that? Well, I want to tell you something very interesting that I don't think you realize. Robotic surgery was really initiated to treat patients injured on the front lines. You know, patient uh, soldiers would get blown up and really damaged, and they couldn't get get them back to the hospitals fast enough. So the thought process was to have these mobile units that would go out on the front line, bring this patient into this cart machine car vehicle and have a robot there with a surgeon remotely operating on them, you know, to get to them during that golden hour initial period. So that's where the development of robotic surgery came from too. And I would imagine, and, and I heard one of the best lectures I ever heard was an astronaut who was a cardiologist and he gave medical lectures in to large groups and he came to one of our florida academy of family physician meetings several years ago and his big push was developing surgical procedures in space because he said things are different the blood it's not in the body you open up the body or you do a procedure the blood is floating around so it's hard to contain things when there's no gravity and the other point that he made was that everyone in space, because there is no gravity, goes into heart failure. So these patients are in huge, not these patients, these astronauts are in huge doses of diuretics the entire time to keep them out of heart failure. Anyway, if you've just joined us, we're talking to Adam Curtin, surgeon, right here in WSTU 1450. And in just a minute, we're gonna talk about robotics. But I wanna ask you one more question before we get there. And that question is, when you decided to do robotic surgery, and this is going to be our lead-in for the next segment, right before the break, were you a little resistant to it at first? I think you must know the answer to that. I did. That's <laughs> why I asked the question. Yeah, I was a, a big opponent to uh, robotic surgery, and I... Uh, I just didn't see a need for it. You know, we were very slick laparoscopically. Why would we need to use a robot? It didn't make sense. Same reason why we have the automobile no, and, and not <laughs> horses and carts. So what happened? I mean, did you have to go, did you have to train? Did you have to go to training to learn how to use it? I mean, you were, you could see that this was where things were headed and that you wanted to remain in practice. So you just had to bite the bullet and go. Not really. I mean, there's, Still, most surgeons don't use uh, the robot to do general surgery. But uh, you want to get to this before or after the break? We can do this now. Okay. So the story goes like this. Uh, robotic surgery was done for prostatectomies and hysterectomies. It was great for one quadrant surgery. And us as general surgeons, we needed access to all quadrants of the abdomen. So the old robots really weren't great for us. Um, 
I'm gonna have to you're gonna hold that gonna thought. We're gonna we're yeah. gonna take a break. We're gonna take a commercial break. We'll be yeah. back in one minute. Okay. That's right. We'll see you soon. Welcome back. You have joined us back with Paradox. I'm Dr. Leanne Talton here with my co-host, Dr. Ira Perlstein. And we are talking to Dr. Adam Curtin today about advances in robotic surgery. And before we went to break, you were just telling us kind of how things came to be. So St. Lucie Medical Center decided that they were going to embark on a robotics program and they were looking for a robotic guy to to do the cases and i uh i had told them that i i didn't see a need for the robot i didn't understand why would anybody fix a hernia with a robot i mean you know our laparoscopic hernia operations they were they were pretty slick and patients did very well so we hired a, a young woman out of uh, residency and she had done some robotics in her in her training and she she stepped up and said I'll, I'll be the robotic surgeon so she went through some training and uh she was about to do her first case at the hospital and they brought down a proctor uh an experienced surgeon from orlando and the night before her first case uh, we were invited to go out to dinner with this uh, proctor. And his name's George Florin. He's a, a wonderful guy. And I went to dinner. Did you give him a shout out? Yeah, I did. Hey, George. Okay. I went to dinner. <laughs> I went to dinner with George. And, uh, and he had trained in Pittsburgh. He's a little older than I am under uh, Dr. Starzl, the guy who invented the liver transplant, you know. And so he, he came from a very reputable program. And just talking to this gentleman, I realized this is a this is the real deal. This guy's a real deal surgeon. And he told me that, uh, you know, he was kind of bored with surgery. He was at a point in his career after 25, 30 years where he was thinking about getting out. And um, his junior partner started doing robotics and he picked it up and he was like, hey, this is really cool and fun. And then he started seeing the outcomes that he was having and his patients were doing great. So, uh, he kind of made sense to me, 
And I said, let me let me give it a uh, let me give it a shot. And George invited me to come watch him operate in Orlando. So I went up to Orlando to watch him do some cases, and that was it. I was hooked. I said, I got to train. So I went and I trained, and the rest is history. So the analogy that I see is robotic surgery is to surgery like flying a drone is to being a pilot. You have to have very good manual dexterity, but you're not actually in front of the patient. How does that work? Well, you know, that's right. The difference is if you, you said it's like a pilot, right? Like a dr flying a drone is like flying a plane. You know, when you crash a drone, nobody gets hurt. If you crash a plane, someone <laughs> gets hurt. We get the graveyard behind you. <laughs> All right. It was okay. a partial okay. analogy. So, so, so let me ask you this. So let's break it down nuts and bolts for people who don't even understand what laparoscopy is. Okay. okay so can you just... Okay, imagine we're all sitting here looking at a belly, mm -hmm. all right? And the patient has mm -hmm. what? Pick your pick your favorite. Uh, let's talk about a hernia. Okay, and a that's hernia. it's a common problem, inguinal hernia, you know, a lump that sticks out of your groin. Okay. So, so to do this robotically, we make three tiny little holes in your abdomen, uh, usually just above the level of the belly button, and each hole is like a half an inch. And we put a camera through the middle port, uh, through the middle hole. And we put two little instruments through the other two holes. And, you, and so at this point, it looks like laparos yeah, laparoscopy. Well, I guess I didn't explain that. Except first, for the fourth hole. First, we... <laughs> with, with laparoscopic surgery, I think it's four holes, right? Well, uh, for it depends on the procedure. You know, for a hernia, there's three. But, you know, for gallbladders, it's four. And even robotically with gallbladders, we use four holes. But, you know, what we didn't tell the listeners is that first you have to inflate the abdomen with gas so that there's room inside. There's a space. So we blow the abdomen up to look like a dome so that we have room to put a camera in and little instruments through these tiny little incisions. And that gas is CO2, carbon dioxide? Absolutely, okay. yeah. So, so then once I have um, the camera and instruments through these little holes, we bring the robot over to the patient and the robot connects up to these instruments. I then take my gown and gloves off and I sit down at a console. It's, uh, it's like a cart that has a viewfinder in it and I have a nice comfortable chair and I put my head into this console and now I'm looking 10 times magnified, ultra high definition, 3D inside someone's abdomen. So the visualization is incredibly uh, higher def than laparoscopy. You know, when we do laparoscopic surgery, I'm looking at a TV screen. It's flat, it's 2D, and, it, and they made some high def screens, but I'll tell you in the early days, it looked like those rabbit ear snowy images. Now I'm, I'm, immersed inside someone's abdomen. I can see every capillary, every nerve. And so I, I can see things that we never saw before. And that makes you a much better surgeon. So you don't have to say sponge or anything like that. Well, it's interesting. Once in a while, you have to have your assistant change instruments. You know, I have, if I have doing a, a robot colon resection, I have a camera and I have three ports and I control these three different arms uh, at this console, I have little um, controllers that my fingertips are in, and the motions of my fingertips are translated to the motions of the instruments inside the abdomen. So you are in the console, but how many? Who else is in the room where the patient? It's a great question. So at the table, I have an assistant, and I also have a scrub tech, and. The console has a microphone and the robot at the table at the patient's side has uh, speakers and a, and a microphone for them to communicate to me. So we communicate back and forth and I'll say in arm four, change the scissors to a grasper and whoosh, scissors come out. Whoosh, now, goes in. Do they get to watch as well? I mean, is there a screen in there so that your assistants can see everything that you see the way you see it? 
Well, everybody in the room's watching TV screens. There's 2D monitors and they're high def monitors. Everybody else is watching, but I'm the only one who sees in 3D. <laughs> now, how far, so how far away is the console from the operating room table? Are we talking like maybe a foot and a half? Are we talking about clear across the room? Because those operating suites are pretty good size. Yeah. I'm in the corner of the room. I'm about, let's say, 12 feet away from the patient. You know, you can do remote surgery and it's feasible to have the uh, surgeon's console in an completely other room as the patient cart. Uh, but, but we're at, we're in the same room. I'm just, uh, away. There have been cases done transatlantic and the, um, speed of the information of the surgeon's motion at his console translated to the instruments, uh, inside the patient is milliseconds. Even transatlantic. Yeah, there's ways that data can be transmitted that fast. So the anesthesiologist feels left out of all this. He's still at the head of the table pumping gas or running the ventilator at, at this point. Uh, do you think they feel left out? Well, they're always, going on? they're always left out. You know, every no, anesthesiologist. We have an anesthesiologist on the showing and a, give them rebuttal. Every uh, anesthesiologist wanted to be a surgeon at some point. And, no. <laughs> and they decided they didn't want to work that hard. So they went into oh, anesthesia. Man, it's true. Man. It's true. Well, well, I had an anesthesiologist once tell me when he described his profession to me that he had hours of boredom and moments of terror. Yeah. And that's the description of what an anesthesiologist does. Because when they have to act, they have to act immediately. But most of the time, they can just sit back kind of on autopilot. True. So let me ask you this. Okay, so what surgeries right now are you doing robotically? Okay, that's an excellent question. The most common operations I'm doing, I'm doing every, first of all, I'm doing pretty much everything in the abdomen now robotically. So so name some of those okay. operations for our listeners. Gallbladders, cholecystectomy, hernias, inguinal hernias, ventral hernias, incisional hernias. We're implanting meshes. Uh, instead of putting mesh in with tacking devices, painful tacks, now we're suturing meshes in because with the robot, our instruments are articulated. We have so many more degrees of freedom of motion with our instruments inside the abdomen. It provides a whole new opportunity to sew inside. So sewing laparoscopically is possible. It's just much more difficult than sewing with the robot. So you've got 10 times visualization. You're looking at it in a three-dimensional image. Mm -hmm. How much less blood loss is there? Significant, significantly less blood loss. And why? Why? Because I can see every vessel. Okay. So I see every little vessel and it allows me the opportunity to coagulate, cauterize every little bleeder before it turns into, you know, a, a bleeding vessel. L let me finish uh, more, more procedures we do. So right now, you know, at St. Lucie Medical Center, I've done gastrectomies, splenectomies, and my real major case that I'm doing is I'm doing colon resections robotically. And I'm doing almost every colon resection I can for colon cancers, for recurrent diverticulitis, for large polyps that the GI doctors can't remove with the scope, we're taking out these colons using the robot. And uh, again, we're going from lengths of stays of five to seven to more days down to two to three days. So less overall time in the hospital, better healing, less pain because no tacking, you're doing some suturing in there. Does a procedure take longer to do robotically than, say, laparoscopically or open? You know, there's a lot of variables that go into what, how long an operation takes. And some of them are, are a little longer. But if a patient is going to get out of the hospital in three or two days versus five or seven days, I'll spend an extra hour in the OR. Now, that being said, you know, I've been at this almost two years now. We've done 230 cases or so, and my operative times have really dramatically reduced. How expensive are these robots? 
Mm, that's a good question. There are we only ask good questions. Yeah. Well, well, you know, the robot themselves, the capital expenditure is significant, but once you own the robot, as the hospitals do, the cost per procedure is actually less. And when you look at the overall cost of, say, a colon resection done open, laparoscopic, or robotically, there's data out there that show that a robotic colon resection overall is much less expensive than an open an open case. Realize uh, an open case is going to be in the hospital for about seven days and a robotic case can be home in two days. And how many robots does St. Lucie Medical Center have? Uh, now we have two of their of Da Vinci, Intuitive Da Vinci's latest and greatest. It's a model called the XI. So you said we're doing almost everything in the abdomen robotically. Are there other places in the body that we can do robotic surgery on? Uh, yeah, you know, um, not commonly at this point. And there are some surgeons, uh, the, the Intuitive Corporation does not approve, uh, and the FDA has not approved robotic mastectomies, but it's been done. Again, I'm still at that point where I don't even see why you would do that. Uh, there are places, again, the FDA hasn't approved it and intuitive surgical doesn't approve it, but, uh, robotic thyroid surgery is being done through the armpit. So there's no incision on the neck. And, you know, as you know, in certain Asian countries, I think in Korea, there's a lot of, uh, stigma attached to a, a female with a neck scar. So I think, um, Korean surgeons develop these techniques of going through the armpit the axilla to get the thyroid out. Who knew? Well, what well, he knew. Incredible. Dr. Kurt, well, knew. I was trying, I was thinking about trying that because I do a lot of thyroids and I was thinking about, but how can you take a, a 45 minute operation and now make a six hour operation out of it well, to spare a incision that's usually very well healing and almost invisible most of the time. But you would get better visualization and probably less chance of nerve damage that would uh, possibly nick the recurrent laryngeal nerve, I would imagine. I don't know. I can't Too imagine. I, I can't imagine. You know, uh, <clears throat> I, again, I'm not, my, I'm not as close-minded as I used to be. I used to be very dogmatic about things. You know, I was opponent of the robot. Now I, all I want to do is robotic surgery. So, um, you know, Right now, I don't see doing a thyroid through the armpit, but maybe someday. We didn't. Yeah. Now we're putting in valves yeah. through the arms. Do you so think, we can do anything. Do you think <laughs> your kids perhaps or surgeons coming up in the future because they've grown up with video games, have better manual dexterity, and therefore the robot would be almost intuitive to them? Oh, that's the name of the company. Interesting. But so thoughts? You know, I, I think that technology is advancing exponentially. I think that in my career, I've seen incredible improvement in the approach to certain operations. And I think that as this technology becomes even more streamlined, I think uh, there'll be more limited access. In other words, smaller incisions, better instrumentation to do what we have to do inside the abdomen. You know, beyond this, I think surgery for certain diseases is going to go away. I think, you know, molecular genetics is going to totally change oncology care. I don't think we're going to be cutting out certain cancers. I think we're going to be treating them with certain gene therapy to make them just melt away. And, you know, that's, uh, there's so much that's uh, coming down the pipe that I, I can't even imagine. So are there any disadvantages to robotic surgery? I suppose it's on a case by case basis, but if you yeah. could generalize. Yeah, generalize. Uh, no. <laughs> no. Listen, <laughs> he loves it, folks. <laughs> I, I, I got to tell you something else. You know, I stood at an operating room table for the past 27 years, you know, in training and practice. And there are certain specialties that would sit at an operating room table, you know, like hand surgeons and certain ear, nose and throat procedures. Ophthalmologists. They, right. They sit. And I'm not going to say that 
I thought you had to stand when you did surgery, otherwise you're a sissy. I wouldn't say that ever. But <laughs> you wouldn't you, say it out you, loud. But you just did. Thousands of people on the radio. Anyway, we do have other surgeons listening to this show. <laughs> Again, I've changed a lot. Um, I sit now. You know, I sit at a console, and I think that ergonomically. Um, I have less back pain, less shoulder pain, less neck pain than I did. And I think that uh, robotic surgery will also uh, increase the length of time surgeons will be able to practice. I think, uh, you know, standing at a table hunched over and twisted to do a laparoscopic operation is ergonomically very unfriendly. And and I think there's data that says that a uh, sur- surgery is one of those specialties where the longer you've been doing it, the better you are. I think so. I think so. Do you think it's less stressful to sit down in front of a console and operate? Um, As long as everything's going well, I'd say yes. You know, I haven't been in a situation where I've had to, uh, you know, uh, rapidly enter an abdomen for a problem. Uh, But I could imagine that would be stressful if and when that ever occurs. So you said there hasn't been a time where you've had to abort the robotic procedure to go towards an open procedure? Not yet. Not to date. And I won't say that'll never happen. You know, you do enough surgery, you're going to see enough uh, complications. We can knock wood, but we don't yeah. have wood. And <laughs> we don't like to knock on the table because the sound engineer gets mad at me when I <laughs> when I tap on the table. So where do you see this going in the future? I mean, you mentioned some of the ways that you think, you know, people are obviously tackling different areas of the body that you wouldn't suspect. But I mean, where else do you think this could lead? So I, I think that the next greatest advancement in surgery is going to be uh, enhanced uh, visualization. I think that when I look into the robotic console now, the next generations of robots are going to have image overlays of CAT scans and MRIs. So with a press of a button, I'll be looking at the anatomy inside a person, but then I'll be able to press a button and see, you know, all the blood vessels that are under the tissues and organs. And if there's a tumor there, I'll press a button and I'll be able to see, you know, the relationship of this tumor to say the ureter that drains urine from the kidney to the bladder. And it'll allow me to operate and see things that are not visible with the naked eye and it'll really take the game up another notch. And how far away are we from actually seeing that become real? Well, some of that exists already. So, uh, you know, when I do colon surgery, um, you know, we have the ability to have a urologist stick stents up into the ureters and we're having, we have a substance, a fluorescing dye that you can inject into these stents. And now when I'm at the robotic console, I can press a button. And now instead of seeing through visible light, I'm looking through black light and the ureters will just glow. So, you know, the robot has a lot of neat, uh, what do you call it with cars, uh, neat uh, options. options. And so there's like little buttons I press and the ureters will glow or, Uh, We have anesthesia inject patients that were taking their gallbladders out with uh, this fluorescent dye and their bile ducts light up. So I'm looking at a gallbladder. I lift it up. I press a a button. Now I'm looking through black light and I can see where the common bile duct is, the common hepatic duct. It's not visible under visible light, but I can see these structures because of. So it, it exists now. And the next the next generations of this is really going to take us to a. So for our listeners that didn't know, and, and exploring the common bile duct is very difficult. You don't want to ever nick the common bile duct. You don't want to cut it and destroy it. But sometimes there's a stone that's stuck in there. And after the gallbladder is removed, they would bring in equipment and they would do what's called an intraoperative cholangiogram, where they would actually do a dye study right in the OR. So this it's kind of like an all-in-one kind of, you know, you can see things with a cholangiogram that you can't see using this fluorescing dye. Um, and we still do cholangiograms when we have to, but, uh, the fluorescing dye is helpful to visualize the location of the ducts and keep them safe. Now I know you're not a vascular surgeon, but what vascular procedures are being done by robots? You know, I'm not, aware of 
any robotic vascular surgery except for, you know, they when they made the robots, I we talked about wartime, but they also created the robot for cardiac coronary bypass surgery. So, you know, if a surgeon has a tremor, the controllers that a surgeon has are translated to the motions at the tips of the instruments that are operating. And you can, in essence, eliminate any tremor that a, a surgeon might have. So for fine coronary artery bypassing, that was felt to make that make it a better instrument for these really fine movements. Um, I, I don't think it took off uh, greatly, but I know that there is a lot of hepatobiliary surgery being done with the robot. They're doing robotic esophagectomies, robotic liver resections, robotic pancreatectomies. So pretty much everything is, is possible to do with the robot. You know, the vascular world, their minimally invasive approach is going through the vessels now. You know, this world of endovascular uh, surgery where they're putting wires inside of the vessels, ballooning things open, putting stents on the inside, and uh, instead of doing external surgery, doing internal surgery. So one of the things you talked about made me think about AI, because mm. you're really touching, uh, dancing around the AI thing. Is it possible that AI could be taking away some of the decision making? I think so. I yeah. think, I, I, you know, I, I joke around that the robots are gathering data on every operation we're doing. And what the robots are doing, this is, a, as I'm, I'm guessing that this is happening, is looking at every variation of the anatomy, every variation of the dissection, and storing this in some big server somewhere so that someday the robots will put us out of business. Kind of like <laughs> Tesla, right? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I'm interested to see what neurosurgeons are going to use robots for. You know, I was impressed when they were doing uh, TAVRs, mm -hmm. uh, not having to open people up to do valve replacement. In the heart. They can just, and, and heart procedures with actually going through the arm or through the leg. We've got so much cool stuff. You have been an amazing guest. You worked all day. Uh, <laughs> all weekend, you, I think. You're in the OR. Uh, not tomorrow. What, tomorrow. What's today? Tomorrow. You are I'm in the office and OR. What? Office. <laughs> yeah. Whatever anyway. happens. I mean, yeah. you're a general surgeon. Yeah. That's your life. Yeah. Anyway, I, I've enjoyed this tremendously. Thank you guys for it's having been me. so fun. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Tune in next week to another episode of Paradox for myself and Dr. Talton. Have a great week.